Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the greatest living American writer and the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and much more. We have a fine show for you this week, as always. Matthew Ehrlich makes his triumphant return to the podcast to talk about True Detective Night Country, a revival of the True Detective franchise that is now airing on Max. Used to be HBO, now it's Max. And Stephen Garrett will be here to talk about the disastrous new action spy comedy Argyle, directed by Matthew Vaughn, starring a bunch of people. But directed by Matthew Vaughn is the only thing you really need to know. But first, we're going to talk to Michael Washburn about developments in the Alec Baldwin shooting case, accidental shooting case, on the set of the movie Rust. There have been uh, new charges filed and new statements put out, and Michael has many things to say about the Alec Baldwin case. And he'll be right back to talk with me about it after this musical interlude. One of the biggest stories in Hollywood over the last couple of years has been the ongoing case against actor Alec Baldwin, who accidentally uh, killed a cinematographer when a prop gun had a real bullet in it and, and misfired on the set of a movie called Rust, a Western that he was uh, producing. And uh, there's been a lot of ups and downs in the case, and some charges were recently refiled against Baldwin, and Michael Washburn is covering this story for us and he's here today to talk to me about it hello michael hi neil hi so what is new in this in the rust case because it was out of the news for a while and then suddenly it kind of re-emerged into my feed well the original legal case against baldwin fell apart and for a long time people thought that was that he was not going to face any serious legal repercussions as astounding as that may be but New Mexico prosecutors have revived charges against Baldwin, manslaughter charges, which is different from murder, as you know. And he has been indicted. And we're going to have to see how this plays out. But it doesn't look like he's going to get off scot-free, as a lot of people had thought. Right. So he, see, initially, like he wasn't acquitted of, of the death of Hamlet Hutchins. He was, uh, he, the, the case just collapsed, right? Because, was it because of lack of evidence? or bad bad lawyering? What, what happened exactly? The law under which they originally charged him was found not to have been in effect at the time that the incident occurred. Well, there we go. So uh, I guess that was a lucky break for him. But, so, but you focused on, uh, in your piece for us, on this letter that SAG-AFTRA put out in support of Alec Baldwin, basically saying that no actor should ever be liable for something like this. Uh, and you you took great issue with that letter. Well, you've really gotten right to the heart of the issue. So thank you for raising that point. It's a very important one. Yeah. So that letter referred to Baldwin as an actor, and there's been a lot of discussion about his role and his degree of responsibility. I read an LA Times article published five days after the incident, which said that Baldwin was not the only producer of Rust and not even the only executive producer. Hence, he did not have sole authority for all the personnel decisions, and we would have to wait for the legal process for all those issues to be teased out. But honestly, I don't think that weakens the argument that I made in my article. Baldwin was an executive producer as well as an actor, and he knew as well as anybody about the extensive troubles on the set of Rust that culminated in a walkout. 
Lane Looper, who was the first camera assistant until he resigned, said in an ABC News interview in November of 2021 that no preparation took place for what was going to happen on the set on a given day. They were just weighing it. Mm. And at that stage of Baldwin's career, given all his experience and resources, I find that rather incredible. Regardless of who may have hired Hanu Gutierrez-Reed or Dave Halls, I think it is fair to say that as executive producer and actor, Alec Baldwin freely utilized the services of crew who were unqualified and had no business handling deadly weapons or providing them to an actor. Well, the the person you mentioned, Hannah Gutierrez, um, was the kind of weapons master. She was in charge of the prop guns. She was armorer. That's correct. Armorer. Okay. So, and she um, reports has said that she was what hung over on the day of the shoot where the cinematographer died. So she she'd been having there were complaints about her on set. What was going on there? These are reports. These are allegations. They're not proven in court, but. Yes, there are allegations that she was drinking heavily and showing up on the set hungover, and that after Helena died, she attempted to pass off cocaine to someone else to avoid being discovered with it, because that would make her look even worse. So these things have all come out in media reports. Right. So that's all uh, That's all very known. But that's sort of the crux of the, of the situation is, you know, SAG-AFTRA argued in its letter that no actor should ever be found liable for something like this. And you seem to think that they're just kind of running cover for Alec Baldwin, who, yes, of course, he didn't do this on purpose. You know, he's not a murderer. But you think that he, as a producer of Rust, bears culpability, potentially. Mm -hmm. I find it puzzling that sag after refers to him in that statement as as an actor on the set, because he was so much more. He had so much more direct responsibility for what was going on. And even if he were just an actor, that does not mean that he would be free from any responsibility for the safe and responsible handling of a gun. Right. But he's been indicted, but he's been indicted as an actor, right? He wasn't indicted as a producer. He was indicted because he did fire the gun. Because he pulled the trigger that ended someone's life. Yes. Yes. Okay. So I guess my question is, um, so they are going to try him as an actor. Like they're not the other producers of Russ. He's not the only executive producer on that doomed film um, are not on trial here. Right. That's correct. So I don't know. I just, I guess, I mean, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with your premise at all. I'm just wondering, like, does it, the fact that he had more responsibility on the movie than just, uh, you know, acting on set, is that going to come up in the trial? Did it come up in the previous trial? Is it, going to be an issue except for maybe in our minds well there was no previous trial it never reached that point all right the previous process i know the it didn't go to trial but like is this something that has come up in the past this sort of idea i believe it is going to be an issue during the trial this is something that the hutchins family lawyer gloria allred has specifically raised she responded to the sag after statement and said he was not just an actor, he was executive producer, and that has obvious immediate bearing on his legal responsibility. Yeah. So, you know, and when you when you mentioned the Hutchins family lawyer, Gloria Allred, I mean, they didn't hire Saul Goodman in New Mexico here, right? This is like, you know, she is a high-powered uh, celebrity attorney. I mean, that, and, and a good one with, with a long uh, history of um, high-profile cases. So you, you seem to think that Alec Baldwin could be in some trouble here. I think so. I think that there will be legal consequences, and that's only right and fitting. And it's disturbing that for a long time, it looked like he was going to get off scot-free. And Baldwin has 
this very brash public persona. He's made a shtick out of ridiculing Donald Trump. Now, Trump takes a lot of heat for saying outrageous things, such as his statement that he could shoot someone with a pistol on Fifth Avenue and not lose support. Now, Alec Baldwin has shot someone with a pistol, and he has not lost support from SAG-AFTRA, and he refuses to accept blame or criticism or responsibility for the death of Lena Hutchins. And that's wrong. That's unacceptable. Yeah. So I guess I guess the question... There's, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of questions here, but really, I think this just this is just something that we're just going to have to watch on full. But I think the the thing you brought up in your piece that was the most interesting was you know was SAG after kind of running cover for Alec Baldwin, who is a prominent like as you said a prominent figure in the industry and also kind of a prominent political figure. And I guess the, I guess the question is, wouldn't SAG after had been better served in this case by just saying nothing? It's a union that supposedly cares about the little people of Hollywood who are very, very vulnerable to exploitation and abuse and mistreatment and having their lives put at risk. And so this is a particularly bad look for SAG-AFTRA. I'm really disappointed. Well, that's not Alec Baldwin. Alec Baldwin is not one of the little people of Hollywood. You know, the little people of Hollywood were represented by SAG-AFTRA during the recent strike. That's my point, you know, though, that, that, yeah. that Alec Baldwin took the life of a relatively powerless person a very talented, wonderful woman, but who did not have nearly as much clout in Hollywood as Alec Baldwin, you would think that if Union was going to side with anybody, it would be with her. Yeah. All right. Well, well, she's not. She's a cinematographer, so she has a different a different union representing her. But I, your your point is well made, and you know it, it is it is an interesting issue. I, you know, I, I wonder, and I, you know, just playing devil's advocate here, if Alec Baldwin weren't such like an outspoken liberal online and in public or whatever would would this have would this be quite so contentious for you if this were just some sort of random actor who doesn't like make a big show of their politics well my view of the legal aspects of the case would be the same no matter who the actor was if it was a prominent conservative if it was clint eastwood i would want to hold him accountable because you cannot be careless and cause the death of someone under seven all right well that's 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 the core principle here so michael thank you so much for uh covering this for for us and uh we'll um we're gonna have to see how it unfolds thank you very much Neil. i don't know what the hell they're doing together thought they hated each other you think i want to work with you i do actually yeah we've got five bodies frozen into a giant block of flesh we got no answers this is going to drag you into the night this is going to sink you in the ice. The surprise hit of the current television season. Well, I guess we don't really have television seasons anymore, but let's say the television moment is the reboot of HBO Max's True Detective. That is a franchise that I thought was long gone. But it is back with a fourth season, a with a new showrunner and a kind of a new vibe, more in a True Detective extended universe vibe. And um, Matthew Ehrlich is here to, uh, today to talk to me about True Detective Night Country, which is now airing on Max. Hello, Matthew. Hello, Neil. How are you? I am doing well. So when I um, approached you about True Detective, you you said that you were not. Um, really all that caught up on the true detective uh, universe you had I, I don't remember if you if you'd seen the original season with McConaughey and um yeah no I'd not seen the original season that was kind of classic television the Matthew McConaughey Woody Harrelson true detective sort of a a linchpin of the McConaissance 
as it were. And, you know, I, I watched that when it was on, but I, I found myself kind of disappointed, not by the performance, especially by McConaughey's performance, because his, 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 that was one of the most iconic TV performances of all time. But I found the sort of the serial killer ending with all the symbols. I just felt very pat and kind of boring to me. And so I faded. I faded off of the franchise uh, for seasons two and three. And I think a lot of people did. But then uh, this new season, Night Country, comes along and suddenly people are excited about True Detective again. And, and you found yourself drawn into its web as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, one of the things that this show takes into an account is that, number one, it has a built-in fan base. And number two, I think it sort of also acknowledges the fact that a lot of people are watching this show while they're on their phones, while they're on their laptops, while they're on Reddit discussing it, while they are reading articles in Vanity Fair and on Vulture about the symbolism to this all and what you know what the easter eggs are from this season that hearten that harken back to season 1 um i kind of had to get really caught up on seasons 1 through 3 and i didn't really have time to sort of you know really gel in that i wasn't one of the people that watched but like you know uh, i uh, the internet played a huge part um, in my enjoyment of the show. And I think that, um, that's actually, I was, you know, previously I would have thought that that was, that would be cheating. But I think in this case, I think that's part of the entertainment. Well, it's interesting that you say that because when the first true, I don't remember what year the first true detective came, came out. I mean, it was certainly was in our, our modern era of, of mass internet communications, but I don't feel like that was the case. You know, it was a sort of a standalone, uh, show that people were talking about mostly because of Matthew McConaughey, Honestly, um, not there was I, Woody Harrelson was was good in it too, but it was really like a McConaughey show, right? Um, and it was sort of a, a you know a sort of a dark buddy comedy drama. Whereas whereas now what you have is this sort of it's it's almost it's gone almost in the direction of like um, the X Files or Lost, you know, mm. where there's there's like a sort of a vast um, conspiracy of sorts uh, that that spans the continent because the first True Detective takes place in Louisiana, but this, this is an Alaska show. Right, right. And I think that, you know, uh, in the first season where Hurricane Katrina played a role, um, in this season, there was a sense that the environment um, and, you know, indigenous people and the struggle between indigenous people and white people and the struggle between technology and energy versus the environment is, is also playing out within you know, the sense that there's this crime being committed and there may be a killer behind this crime and it may have something to do with, you know, something that's happened before, but it also has larger implications that are even spiritual in nature or, you know, psychic phenomena. The, the mo- mother nature, she is angry. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I mean, no one has said yet mother nature, but that's sort of what, where my mind goes. It's that kind of show. Something like that. So speaking of mother nature, this, you know, what's interesting about this new true detective um, is that, you know, the, the, the previous seasons were, were very male centered, but this has right. a female, sh- female showrunner and two female stars, including Jodie Foster, who is back on TV for the first time in nearly 50 years. So I don't, I mean, I don't know if that, if that is a, uh, I'm sure that contributes to to the the vibe, the excitement about the current show. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting, um, you know. For instance, this scient this this um, this lab where these scientists are missing. It's all male. It's this all male enclave, and they've all been wiped out. And it's these two women 
um, who are essentially trying to piece together what happened. And there's even a scene where a flashback to one of the women, there's a woman whose murder um, is still a preoccupation of these two women. Uh, Jodie Foster is in the process of trying to forget about it. And Navarro is in the process of trying to solve the crime still. Navarro is the name of her partner. The actress's name is what? Callie Ress? Race? Exactly. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And there's a flashback to this woman and she's a midwife. And so there's this scene in which, you know, about 12 women are all, you know, in a kiddie pool helping this woman give birth to a baby. Um, and there's something about, you know, the, the power of, you know, women together. And it's a, and it's a very beautiful moment. Um, so there's a lot of this idea of like male versus female, you know, a lot of binary going on. Um, all right. Well, I mean, look, I, I'll admit, Matthew, like th this sounds to me like sounds to me like a puzzle box show. I got to say. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, I, I kind of like my procedurals a little more straightforward, you know, you know, it's like <laughs> I, I just feel like, you know, when 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 cop shows go puzzle box, I mean, I guess I guess I buy into it when it's David Lynch. Uh, but he's kind of, but he kind of parodies the whole notion of puzzle box. Don't, but this doesn't feel like stretching to you. I think you found yourself like you found yourself um, drawn in to the true detective universe, the, to the fandom. I can get very cranky when things get too puzzle box myself. Yeah. Um, and I found myself, I think, because of Jodie Foster's presence. Uh, her performance is fantastic. I think this new woman, Callie Reese, is amazing as well. Um, Fiona Shaw, a favorite of mine, is playing against type as this sort of wacky survivalist who speaks to the dead. Um, I think that it works um, because it feels very authentic and it's very well done. So, so I, th I feel like it's definitely worth a watch. I, I was, um, it would have been very hard to sell me on this show and I, I'm totally down for it. Well, it is it is the show of the moment. It, you know, if if there, I thought the water cooler shows no longer existed, but apparently, uh, because you know, no one goes into the office anymore. But apparently, uh, True Detective Night Country has has claimed the mantle for the moment. Well, I would I would call this more of a Reddit show. Actually, I think. Uh, I don't think well, Reddit is the yeah. Reddit is the water cooler of, exactly. of today. Yeah, that is true. You know, the the um, yeah the uh, not not the not the wine cooler. Um, like it's like the White Claw. <laughs> yeah so that is so it, and you you're on reddit like like looking for easter eggs right exactly yeah. yeah all right well um if you want to watch true detective night country it is on hbo max and if you want to talk to obsessed fans about true detective night country i guess reddit is the place to go you can find matthew there usually from what like 8 to 11 on week weekday nights Yes, yes. Okay, all right, all right. You, you, we can, you can engage him there. All right, Matthew Ehrlich, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I certainly hope you dance as well as you dress. There's only one way to find out. You and I, we're not so different. Agent Argyle. It'll help. Hold on. Time for you to meet the real Agent Argyle. I like to think of myself as a professional, 
in the way I conduct my business or even highly professional. I'd say highly professional, but even I couldn't bring myself to go see Argyle <laughs> to talk about it with Stephen Garrett. I was already on the fence and then the reviews started trickling in and I was like, no, you know what? I'm just going to let Stephen see this and then I'm going to let him talk shit about it. And I'll just, I, I will, I will, I will talk shit about this movie uh, by proxy. Argyle, uh, directed by Matthew Vaughn, who made Kick-Ass and the Kingsman movies, is in theaters now and is are being widely reviled as one of the biggest flops of all time. Maybe Stephen, perhaps I think you would agree. You would agree if I read your I read your review. Yeah, oh, man, I hate being I hate I hate being a hater. Yeah, I, I didn't want to I didn't want to dislike this movie. I actually was I was really I surprised myself by how happy I was going to the press screening because I was like I just need a fun dumb action comedy, little romance, little spy versus spy nonsense. I'm down for it. You know, I'm very uh, I have a wide bandwidth of tolerance for uh, this sort of thing. And this uh, kind of broke me. It broke me. It, it really is so insultingly silly that I, I, I uh, got I got kind of angry and, and sad. That's that's crazy because I, I love being a hater, as you know, and <laughs> I, I, I'm happy. To, I, I hate things that other people don't hate. I mean, you and I hated on the holdovers, which, you know, I've, I've reconsidered <laughs> since we talked. And I'm like, well, it really wasn't. It was actually pretty good. But oh, uh, OK. Yeah. I mean, what, but that's we're we're not here to talk about the holdovers. But I'm, what I'm saying is, like, I'll hate on stuff that other people won't hate on. Um, but I, I couldn't even I couldn't even see a scenario where where or seeing Argyle would be something that I would I would ever do. I mean, I, I really di Matthew Vaughn directed it, and I really really dislike his movies. I have to say, there's there's like there's this mix of like snark and like mindless violence, and just they're over stylized. And as we pointed out in a book and film. Globe piece this week. There's a there's a ton of like egregious product placement, right? For products yeah. that he, that he he himself invests in, and I just I just find that really just really gross. Um, I, his whole vibe just just does not um sit well with me. So let's talk about this this film Argyle. The, it's the premise. The premise is that there's this um, genre novelist played by Bryce Dallas Howard, uh, whose creations somehow come true in the real world. Is that more or less the idea? Yeah, I mean, you know, one character calls her like a like a a, a fortune teller because she's so accurate. You know, it's what I and this appealed to me the premise. You know, like the idea that um, you know, like Jean Le Carré really was a spy, right? Like, didn't he? Yeah, he was a didn't he work for MI six or something or MI five? Yeah, he was. He was really a, he, he he really was a spy, uh, but you know, his spies were very boring. <laughs> <laughs> well, but 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 still, the the idea that uh, the veracity of this fiction author who's best selling and has this phenomenal series of spy books, you know, could potentially like people were saying, is she a spy? How does she know so much? How could she? And she was just like research, research, research. That's all it is. Um, and then suddenly she gets visited by spies, one who wants to protect her, who is Sam Rockwell. And we don't know whether we can trust him or not. A running joke in the film and the tagline for the film is the greater the spy, the bigger the lie. So that, you know, you're in for some hijinks and some plot twists and some shock reveals. Um, and uh, he protects her from suddenly swarms, swarms of basically dead meat, like you're saying. Like he, Matthew Vaughn loves a body count and the, the insane amount of uh, human life sacrificed at the altar of this movie is like very impressive, like almost more than a Schwarzenegger movie. And it's just Sam Rockwell 
you know? But here's the thing, right? Like, you know, you look at John Le Carre's spies, there's a lot of paperwork and then you meet someone right. on a you meet <laughs> someone on a on a bridge in East Germany and, ha- and have a whispered conversation and then they end up in the drink. Right. You know, that that's pretty that's what that's what real life spying is about. This is this just feels to me like uh this is a cartoon, basically. It's a cartoon. It really is. It's like it's a Looney Tunes cartoon at a certain point and and you know, I you suspend disbelief until there's nothing left to suspend and you're just thinking, what? You know, this this one character suddenly is another character is another character. Um, you know, this this deals suddenly we've got a little brainwashing going on, some amnesia going on. Nothing seems as it is. You don't know who's on the right side or the wrong side. And you have this goddamn cat through the whole thing just sitting expressionless in a backpack, which I guess is funny. I don't know. It, it was an appendage that seemed unnecessary. Uh, and yeah. I, I just didn't I didn't get on its wavelength at all you know i and i I like a good dumb action scene of course i mean we both enjoyed the mission impossible whatever that thing was that came out this summer and there were some great dumb action scenes in that it's not like it's not like i i mind a car flying out of an airplane or whatever and why else do you go to the movies um so okay I, i i let's address one thing when you turn in your review to me and you you included a bunch of photos five photos and they were all Yes. Every single one of them was of Dua Lipa. The only good thing in the movie. The only, And I was very angry once I realized that her early appearance in the film, which was delightful and sparkling because she's Dua Lipa, uh, is actually this kind of fictitious, like imagined character that's in one of her books. And you never see her again. And it made me very sad. Well, because she was looking super fly in those photos you sent me. Uh, uh, I'm tremendous. like, uh, yeah. <laughs> she's front and center in the marketing. She's yeah. prominently in the trailer. It's a real bait and switch that also kind of annoyed me and irked me. There was a certain insulting of intelligence that I found in this movie that I hadn't in Matthew Vaughn movies before, you know, and you're right. He can be inane uh, and ultraviolent in ways that are really uh, unpleasant, but there's usually a glee to the whole thing. That's kind of fun. And there's enough of a through line of, reality at least according to the its own kind of rules in in a movie you know if a movie follows its own reality then i'm happy to follow along with it but this this just kept it's it was almost insulting after a while like they were just like you know what you're all sheep you're just watching explosions you don't care what the story is so we don't care either and you it's like you know what it's actually that's not true we do care about story Right. If you're going to take British genre director, Mike Vivon is British. Correct. I'm correct. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. If you take a British genre director, I, you know, I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I way prefer Guy Ritchie. Yeah, <laughs> you know? I know. I know, right? <laughs> he's, he's so much better. <laughs> I know. Matthew Vaughn is kind of the off-brand Guy Ritchie, and Guy Ritchie is like kind of off-brand anyway, but he's his own thing, and at least he's got a certain amount of integrity that I feel he brings to the play. This, it does feel like he's more interested in product placement and, you know, I don't know. Just like having fun with his you know, actor friends and having a lot of nonsensical CGI that really is distracting and boring after a while instead of fun and inventive. A pox on everyone involved in this $200 million project. Argyle. Yeah, boo. 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 $200 million. Boo. That's a lot. That's a lot. I mean, and, and some of that, a lot of that is just like rights to the sequel or to the Argyle universe. There's not going to be... An Argyle universe, Stephen. <laughs> That's right? true. That's true. I think, what is it? I, I know I misreported it because I just said it cost $200 million, but I think the nuance is that Apple bought the rights for $200 million to Argyle and any potential, like you're saying, sequels, prequels, the Argyle universe. And, and right at the end, there's this really kind of strained 
sort of whisper of a connection to the Kingsman universe. And you're just like, what? Please. No. no. Stop. No, never, never. That is, that is enough straight to video with you. <laughs> exactly. Or straight, straight to the airport. Well, it's on airplanes, right? Isn't that, uh, that's where all movies go to die. Yeah. Or, or live again, because this would be very enjoyable on an airplane. I think in between, you know, like, I don't know, Sudoku and go to the bathroom. And, yeah, and like an, and, and, an ep, and some episode of an off-brand Gordon Ramsay cooking show. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Looking over the shoulder at somebody, seeing this nonsense, you're like, yeah, it's not bad. Yeah, like you usually on the airplane, I, I, I'm like, why is there? Why is someone always watching the Fellowship of the Ring? I'm like, <laughs> haven't you fucking seen that yet? <laughs> it's a long flight, I guess. Yeah, exactly. that's that. That is true. The Lord, yeah, that, that that is true. All right, Stephen Garrett, thank you for going to see Argyle. I'm sorry you were disappointed. There, there's always another movie. There's always another movie. Yeah, hope springs eternal. All right, thank you, Stephen Garrett. Argyle is now in theaters. God help your soul if you choose to go see it. Also, thanks to Matthew Ehrlich for discussing True Detective Night Country, which is now airing on Max. And thanks to Michael Washburn for talking about developments in the Alec Baldwin shooting case on the set of the movie Rust. I am Neil Pollock. I am the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe and the host of this podcast. You can find the site at www.bookandfilmglobe.com. I am the real Agent Argyle, and you are not, and I will talk to you soon. Original Production.